Good morning, Summit Church. I want to say a special hello, give a special shout out to those of you that are worshiping with us at other campuses, as well as those of you that are joining us right now uh, in the bay here uh, at the Briar Creek campus. Uh, if you are new to the Summit Church, or if this is the first time that you have been here in a little while, we are nearing the end of a study that we have been in now for several weeks. It's one that started from before Christmas, um, called The Search for a King, in which we have worked our way through the life of David, um, studying one of the most significant Old Testament figures, maybe even the most significant figures in all the Bible. He's mentioned more times in the Bible than anybody else, except for Jesus himself. Uh, and so we're talking about somebody that dominates the pages of Scripture. And so we have taken our time to work our way through the life of King David and just looked at him from just about every possible angle. Well, we are nearing the end of that study. We're not quite there because Second um, Samuel, or the whole life of David, it's kind of interesting, has two different endings that are given to it in the Bible. The reason there are two different endings is because there are two parallel accounts of David's life. One of them is in 2 Samuel, um, and that author, you know, ends it one way. And then 1 Chronicles is like a parallel account of David's life, and that author ends it another way. Now, these are not two contradictory endings, like, you know, one of them says that he died in France in battle, and the other one says he died of a freak mule accident in Egypt. But, you know, it's not like that. But it just means that each author chose a different event to summarize and bring together all the events of David's life. So it's got two endings, and in that way it's, it's somewhat like one of my sermons. You ever heard me come to the end and be like, in conclusion, and then like a few minutes later say, in conclusion again? That, that's kind of what happens there in the Bible. And I was looking at both of these and trying to figure out which one of these endings that I wanted to choose for David's life. And difficult decisions, hard decisions just totally stress me out. So I, I'm just going to do both of them. And I'm going to do one of them this week, and I'm going to do one of them next week, which will be our final message. But today, we're going to do ending number one of the life of David. It comes from 2 Samuel chapter 24. So if you have a Bible, I would love for you to pull that out and open it to 2 Samuel 24. And I am going to, um, to work you through this passage, walk you through this passage, and work you through this passage. Um, there was another reason, uh, just to be totally frank with you, um, there was another reason that I considered skipping this passage because, quite frankly, there are a number of difficult things that are in this passage that are very difficult to interpret and very difficult to explain. And so part of me just wanted to skip this passage because it's like, you know, I'm just not even going to walk them through that because it's going to raise so many questions and it's so hard to explain, so why don't I just do that? But I decided not to do that for a couple reasons. One is, A, I didn't want you guys to call me a wimp, and I know that you would. And B, because whenever people ask me questions about the Bible, like especially people who are not Christians and are having trouble believing that the Old Testament could possibly be a book written by God, they almost always point to passages like this one here in 2 Samuel 24. Um, this passage has a number of elements in it that make a lot of people say there is no way the Bible could be a book authored by God if it's got that kind of stuff in it. And so I thought, if nothing else... This would be a good example of me showing you how believing people take passages like this one and how you interpret them and how you understand a lot of the difficult things in that. Uh, so that's the other reason I wanted to do this, was to give you an example, because I get so many questions, especially from people who aren't Christians, and maybe that's some of you today, um, how wow, passages like this one, how the Bible could be God's Word and have stuff like this in it. All right? So you ready? You need to get your game face on, because this is, this is a game face passage of scripture. I'm, I'm, I'm all amped up and I'm ready. Plenty of Mountain Dew, Gatorade. 2 Samuel 24, verse 1. 
Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go and number Israel and Judah. Now, there's your, one of your first major problems right there. We'll come back to that one. But who was it that incited David to do this? But basically the deal is this. David sends out a command that he wants um, his people to number all of the fighting men in Israel, both those that are currently in the army as enlisted men, as well as those who are eligible for the draft. All right, so verse 3, Joab, who was, if you remember, the man criteria, says back to King David, he's like, look, man, may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are. I want our king to have lots of fighting men, but why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? He says, David, why are you doing this? He sees this as a senseless census. He's like, David, what's, what's going on with this? You see how it says there the word delighted? I think that's a key word that we're going to come back to. But David's response back to Joab is, listen, man Kriteri, you're the man Kriteri, I'm the king, I make the rules, do it! And Joab says, yes, sire, and goes out, gets a job done, gets the numbers back to David. Jump down to verse 10. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people, and David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I've done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity for your servant, of your servant, for I have done very, very foolishly. Now, at this point, many of you may be asking the question, you're like, well, what, what's wrong with what David did? I mean, getting a count of the people, that sounds organized. I mean, no accountant is worth his salt who would not know how many people are in his army and how you know, many people there are to tax and all that kind of stuff. It just sounds like it's a, an organized plan. Now, I am going to give you an explanation for why I think this was so wrong. But before I do that, I want to lay out one kind of just ground rule for you, one little caveat. And that is that at the end of the day, it's wrong because God had told him not to. Right? I mean, you ever notice that our culture has this major pride thing going on where people in our culture are like, God, we will believe your rules if we understand and agree with them. Listen, if there is a God, then he makes the rules. And some of them you might not understand at first, but that doesn't mean that you and I get to decide on which ones we want and which ones we don't. I got rules my kids don't understand. This conversation has taken place in my house. It probably has in yours if you're a parent. I know those little slits in the wall look like they're made for utensils, but they are not. Do not put a fork in the electric outlet, at which point the response is, why, Dad? And I say back to them, because on the subatomic level, there are these little things called electrons that are moving about between the orbits, and when they generate orbits and they jump between them, they create an alternating current that when it travels through this wire and enters your body, it'll disrupt your central nervous system and burn your skin. Is that what you say to your three-year-old? <laughs> no, you say, because I'm the dad, and I love you, and at this point, I know more about electricity than you do, so just do it. Now, here's the question, all right? Again, just think logically. What is the gap? What is, what is the greater gap? The gap between my understanding of electricity and my three-year-olds or the gap between God's understanding of the universe and mine? If it's greater that God would be that much more wise than I am, then of course there's some things that I am not going to understand. If you obey Jesus only when he makes sense to you, then he's not your Lord, he's your advisor. Right? I am not telling you to check your brain at the door. I'm just telling you that if there is a God and you believe this is his word, then you should have at least have the humility to submit to his lordship. Okay, that's my caveat off the soapbox back into the text here. 
All right, here's what I think is wrong with what David did, and I think i got a good reason to think this. I think the key is in the word delighted. David finds a delight in how strong he's made the army. There's probably three things that work there. Number one, pride. He's trying to rejoice in how strong he's built up the institution and say, look at what I've done. Number two, I see a lack of faith. He, he wants to know how many fighting men he's got because he wants to see how well they're going to do when somebody attacks him. He said, well, what's wrong with that? God had promised to take care of them. And so the David that used to say, it doesn't matter how big the giant is because God fights for us, that David's not there anymore. And now he's like, yeah, that was me when I was a teenager. But now I got responsibilities and I got bills to pay and I got a kingdom to run. So it's all going to come down to how big that army is. So there's a lack of faith. Pride, lack of faith. Number three, military aggression. One of the reasons that, that you figure out how many fighting men you have is because you're thinking about picking a fight, right? These things made David delight in his army. He should have been delighting in God. He should have been trusting in God, and he should have had his eyes on God's grace, not on the potential conquest of other nations. Here is the irony. And by the way, I love the author of First and Second Samuel. I mean, it's got everything I would want in it, in a book. It's got danger, it's got fighting, it's got love and romance and espionage and intrigue and betrayal. And the whole time, if you notice, there's potty humor, seventh grade potty humor mixed throughout both of these books. It's like a perfect book. And then just to cap it all off, it ends with this delicious irony. Here it is. The irony is 2 Samuel ends with David repeating the same sin that opened 1 Samuel. You remember back when we, we started this study? Israel's first sin going into 1 Samuel was that they wanted a king to replace God as their security and their treasure. Now David wants an army to replace God as his security and treasure. So David sinned here because he delighted in the strength of his numbers, not in the grace of God. And by the way, have I told you that the last several weeks we've had close to 5,500 people here at the Summit Church? Did you know that we're the 16th fastest growing church in the nation? Have I told you that recently? Okay, listen, there's more irony in that, all right? That is awesome. Thank God we should rejoice. Church, listen, I tell you a lot of that stuff to encourage you. I like to reflect on the grace of God that is at work in our church. I, I recently, the vice president of the largest church planning agency in America told me, he says, man, your church, we now use it as the model. We bring up your church all the time because what you guys are doing there, how you sent out 25 people to go plant a church in Denver, the way that you're raising up and training up church planners. He said, you guys are it. Y'all are the model. I mean, I think that's awesome. The, 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 the president of the International Mission Board told me that we have more missionaries on the field than any other church that he knows of in the United States. I think those things are fantastic, but church, listen to me. Our boast is not any of those things because it's all been the grace of God, right? And what you understand is that our security as our church is not in our buildings and it's not in our budget. And our delight is not in how big our ministries are. Our delight is in God's grace to us. We don't rejoice that the demons have been made subject to us. We rejoice that our names have been written down in the Lamb's book of life because that's a greater treasure than any of us could ever have imagined having and more grace than any of us deserve. Our delight is not in our church. Our delight you see, is in Jesus, and that's where our boast is. So let me ask you this question about you. What is it that you delight in? What makes your heart soar just a little bit when you think about it? What is, you drive up to your house, you're like, man, look at that thing. You know, is it a certain award that you've gotten? Is it how much money you made last year? Maybe you just look in the mirror and you're like, dang, my body looks good. I've worked on it for like a solid year, and look what it looks like now. Is that what you delight in? 
What causes your heart to delight? Because what you see is that David's sin here is not something altogether bad, it seems. It's that he's taking delight in something more than God, and he's replaced God as his security and his treasure. That's what's behind all this. And you and I, as individuals and as a church, might be much more dangerously close to David than you and I probably realize. Because usually idolatry is not delighting in a bad thing, it's delighting in a good thing so much that it replaces the delight you should have in God and his grace. Verse 11, when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad. Now Gad, what what happened to Nathan? Nathan went into retirement. The new guy, the rookie was Gad. Gad, the prophet of God. Gad was from Boston and that's just how they say God up there. That's why he's named Gad, all right? That's a footnote in my Bible, you should write that down. So Gad, the prophet of God, says, or God says to Gad, go and say to David, thus says God, three things I offer you, choose one of them that I may do it to you. This is like the worst genie experience ever, (laughs) okay? Three things, choose one. You're like, I'm going with none of the above. Verse 13, shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or shall you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me, namely God. Verse 14, then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. And so David chooses the pestilence, the plague, to come upon the land for three days. And it tells you that within three days, 70,000 people died. 70,000 Israelites died. Now, let me just make sure you understand the story, and then I'm going to show you what the big problems are that he has with the story. Basically, David decides that he's going to delight in and find more security in the size of his army than he does God. He is going to think about what all these things say about him, and he's now replaced God with himself and his own strength. That grieves God, and so God sends a punishment, and David chooses a punishment which is Three days of plague afflicting the people of Israel and 70,000 people die. All right? Now, again, it is passages like this one that are precisely what keeps some people from believing the Old Testament could possibly be from God, aren't they? Did you see why? There were a number of problems some of you probably noticed as we went through there. And there's probably some more that you didn't even notice. So I'm going to deal with the ones that you saw and then maybe some you didn't see too. So in other words, I'll see your objections and I'll raise you a few objections, all right, in this passage. I see five of them. Number one, who was it that incited David to count the fighting men? Who was it? 2 Samuel 24 says that God moved David to fight, count the fighting men. The the Lord did it. But, you know, that's kind of a problem. But then it gets even worse because if you read, get this, the parallel account in 1 Chronicles, when the author of Chronicles tells the same story, he says, chapter 21-1, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Uh Uh-oh. I mean, is it Satan or is it God? That's a pretty bad contradiction, isn't it? I mean, when you confuse what Satan says for what God says, that's about as big of a contradiction as you can get. So you see, the Bible hopelessly contradicts itself. No. That's actually just a misunderstanding of God's sovereignty. The Bible teaches that God sometimes you see, allows us to fall prey to the temptations of Satan or allows us to fall prey to even our own evil desires. In one sense, God is not the one doing it, 
Satan is the one that's tempting us, and we're the ones that are choosing to yield to that temptation. But in another sense, God is sovereign even over that temptation. In one sense, God is sovereign over that because God could have stopped it even if he wanted, or stopped it if he wanted. So he allows us to follow our own wicked desires as a part of his plan. So both the statements in 1 Chronicles and 2 Samuel are correct. 1 Chronicles correctly says that Satan was behind this temptation, and 2 Samuel correctly acknowledges that God had a sovereign purpose in the whole thing. Nothing, you see, is outside of God's control. God works all things according to his plan. But that doesn't mean that he is the one doing those things. Now, how it is that he takes our free decisions and even the malicious intentions of Satan and works them for his perfect plan is a mind-boggling mystery. I will acknowledge that to you. But he does it because he's God. In fact, here's an analogy, and all analogies break down. This one will break down if you press on it, but it's a word picture that'll at least get you pointed in the right direction. I've heard this described before as kind of like a river with a really strong current that's flowing through a, a countryside. Your river obviously has two banks in it. In one sense, all the molecules of the water uh, of the river and the fish in that river have the freedom to swim around in that river anywhere they want to go. They're free. But in another sense, because of the current, because of the riverbanks, they are being led to a very particular point in that countryside. And I've heard that used as a picture to describe how you and I are free. We're making our decisions. We're listening to the temptations of our enemy. We're, we're doing things that we want, and we are free. But in another sense, God is guiding all these things to exactly the place where he wants it. Now, again, let me acknowledge this to you, and I say this a lot. If you're one of those people who like to have everything figured out in a math formula, there's just some things about God like this that are going to frustrate you because he doesn't fit neatly into your mental, mental Excel spreadsheet. And I know that just drives some of you crazy. But then again, listen, we're talking about God, right? Would you just stop and think about what that means for a minute? I mean, if there is a God, if there is a God, then he would be infinite in power and infinite in wisdom, right? Infinite in power and infinite in wisdom. I mean, if there is a God, then he created everything that you and I see with just a word. He created the galaxies, the nebula, the human body, the solar system, the molecule, the, the subatomic particles of the atom, all that with a word. There is more information in one DNA strand than we could contain in 500 copies of the Encyclopedia Britannica. You can't figure out how to plug up your DVD player into your cable box. Okay? Well, you, you getting the picture here? No, no, no. Again, just logical. Think about this. If God's wisdom is as high above yours to the same degree that his power is above yours, does it not make sense to you that there will be many things about him that do not make sense to you? My counsel for you, humbly but accurately, right, is for you not to have so much confidence in your own abilities. Quit trying to make God as dumb as you. That should be a verse in the Bible. We write that down, all right? That's going to go into JDV one day, all right? Quit trying to make God as dumb as you. And why don't you think about coming into his presence with a little less of a strut and a little bit more of a bow, okay? Until you can create your own universe Maybe making yourself the judge of everything that God is and does, maybe it would require a little bit more humility. Create your own universe and then we'll have a conversation. All I'm telling you is the appropriate question is, if there is a God, then it makes sense to me that there's many things about him, how he rules the universe, what he does, that just blows my mind. 
And I'm okay with that. Number two, here's your second problem. Is there a, uh, a discrepancy in the numbers that are reported? You see, another thing you'll notice if you study the First Chronicles account is that there's a discrepancy in the number of people that get reported. 2 Samuel 24 says that in the northern states there were 800,000, whereas 1 Chronicles 21 says that there were 1.1 million. So people point to this and they're like, well, clearly there's a contradiction here. The Bible can't possibly be written by God because God could count. Whenever I encounter this kind of contradiction, all right, and it's a, it's a fair question, there's one of two things that I, I usually do. The first thing is you just do a little research. You do a little research and try to figure out what's all behind this. And if you do a little research on this passage, what you'll find out is that 1 Chronicles 27 tells you there were 288,000 people in the standing army in Israel. So the number in 2 Samuel 24, the 800,000, that is a report of the number of people eligible to be drafted. If you add 800,000 eligible to be drafted to 288,000 that are in the standing army, you will come up with 1,088,000, which is basically the 1.1 million that was reported in Chronicles. If you round that number from, you know, 1,088,000 to 1.1 million. And I know you're like, well, I just feel like he's God. He should probably give me an exact count. No, that's not fair. I mean, I mean seriously, I mean, I know God knows how many there are, but we all speak in rounding and you know, if you call me at 11.55 and I'm like, what time is it? And you say noon, I don't scream, liar, you know? I mean, you round, it's, it's, it's fine, okay? So God speaks to us in ways with round numbers. And so what you've got is you've got a rounding here and you've got the number in 2 Samuel reporting a different number than 1 Chronicles because there's another number in that number he didn't count. So if you do research, this all works out just fine, right? That's one way that I handle stuff like this. The other way, and I'll just freely acknowledge this to you, is sometimes in passages like this one, what you've got when there's a discrepancy in numbers is you've got what we call a copyist error. A copyist error because the Bible has literally been copied over the years hundreds, thousands of times down through the years. And a lot of times when people are copying these things by hand, they're not, you know, scanning it, putting in Adobe and posting it up on the internet. They're copying it by hand sometimes when it comes to names, when it comes to phrasing, when it comes to numbers, a little copying error will slip into it, and that doesn't need to throw you off. I know you're like, oh, but that totally throws off my confidence in God's words. Is this not the word of God? How am I supposed to trust it if maybe some monk monked it up according to his own agenda? How am I supposed to do that? All right, think of it like this. Think of it like this. Um, a yard, like a yard measurement. It's about that long, right? How do we know how long a yard is? Does Congress get to vote on that every year? I mean, how long is a yard? Well, Actually, the official yard measurement is in a museum in Great Britain, okay? And every other yard is measured by that one official yard. Now, what happens if that thing gets stolen, the official yard measurement? Do we throw up our hands in despair and say, I can't remember how long a yard is, we gotta quit playing football and start playing soccer? Is that, is that what we do? No, right? You could compare the millions of yardsticks that have been made as copies off that one yard, and you could come down to within a fraction of a millimeter of what the actual yard was. What you've got when it comes to the Bible is you've got millions of copies that have been scattered for centuries all around the world, and by getting them and putting them all together and comparing them, we know within a fraction of what of what the words are, of exactly what's being said. We know where there's a possible discrepancy in the numbers because somebody made a copying error, and I can tell you that not a single one of those discrepancies affect the substance of the message of the Bible at all, okay? 
Again, let me just be honest with you. In college, this really threw me off because I would look at certain passages where there'd be an apparent contradiction or a, a discrepancy, and I'd kind of be like, huh, how am I supposed to trust this to be in the Word of God if it's got, if it's got the, the, these errors in it? I have, in the 18 years since I was, have been in college, I have studied literally hundreds of those supposed contradictions. Every single one has worked out. Every one. So I'm just telling you that as you approach the Word of God, and when you encounter something like this that looks like a contradiction, I realize the Bible is it's a very earthy book. It's put together in somewhat of a messy fashion. But what you'll find is that, yes, it's written by human authors, over 40 of them on three different continents over a span of like 2,500 years. But what you'll find is that God's Spirit is the one that has guided this, and this is a book that you can trust and build your life on. And I would just encourage you not to be lazy and just dismiss it, but to get into it. And when you study it and when you research it, you'll find these things work out. Number three, number three wasn't, here's the, the third objection people give. They're like, well, wasn't this punishment like an overreaction? I mean, come on. People read, you know, that God sent this big plague in response to David counting the people, and they feel like, you know, I mean, at best, God's a little cranky here. One of the things, listen, that David's counting indicates is a military buildup of Israel. What that means, watch this, is that Israel is becoming like the other nations a nation that looks to dominate other nations. Did you know that almost all of the big judgments in the Bible, I mean the apocalyptic stuff, almost all the big judgments in the Old Testament are because of the aggressive violence of a society. Genesis 6 says that when God sent the flood, it was because the world had grown so violent and every thought of men toward one another was one of violence and exploitation. Sodom and Gomorrah, Ezekiel 16.49 says that Sodom and Gomorrah were judged for oppressing, or in Hebrew, grinding the poor. God sent Jonah, 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 Jonah to Nineveh to warn it of its impending destruction because, it says, they were so oppressive and brutal to the surrounding nations. When God sent the children of Israel into Canaan, he said it was because of the Canaanites' brutality which included infant sacrifices and the constant pillaging of their neighbors. Israel's taking of the promised land was a judgment by God on those nations. So do you see what's happening here in 2 Samuel 24? Israel was becoming the very nation that God had used them to judge. And if they became like those nations, God would have to judge them like those nations. So you see, in one sense, this is mercy. Because if they kept on their current course, their current trajectory, they would turn into a nation that God would have to judge much worse than this. You're thinking Sodom and Gomorrah. You're thinking the flood. So God's judgment, his extreme measure, was in some ways saving them from a much more devastating judgment later. And It was mercy. Does that make sense? I mean, think, of it, think of it like this. Sometimes I come home from, from work here and I walk into my house and uh, I look at my wife and I can look in that woman's eyes and know that she has had one of those days that you have when you have four kids under the age of seven. You know what I'm talking about? And I know there's a little signal that's like, don't mess with Veronica. And I sit down at the table and I'm eating dinner and I don't you know, look her in the eyes. I'm just talking about how good it is. And this doesn't happen often, but when it happens, right? So I'm sitting there and... In fact, this happened the other night. One of my kids smarts off at my wife, totally disrespects my wife. And I look up, 
and I can see it in her eyes. It's like a red flag waving in front of the bull, you know? And I look at that kid, and we have a rule in our house that you don't disrespect authority, you know, so I pick that kid up from the table, and I carry her into the back room, and I discipline her, which in our house is spanking, all right? Now, that, they don't enjoy it. It's discipline, but I have saved that child on at least two accounts. <laughs> all right? Number one, number one, I have cured a character flaw in her, which if left unchecked would damn her soul to hell, right? Because if she doesn't ever learn to submit to authority, namely God, that's going to be a major problem, number one. But number two, I have saved her from a much more harsh and devastating judgment that she would have gotten from my wife had I left that thing un undealt with. I'm like, kid, you just better be glad I was the one who picked you up, not that woman over there, okay? <laughs> what you see happening here is God what he does, yes, I mean, it's, it's judgment. It hurts. But God's work here is mercy, saving them from where the trajectory of their sin was taking them. See? Number four. Fourth question. Well, what about the innocent? David commits the sin, right? But the people are the one who pay. This brings up the whole question of human suffering. People ask, why do innocent people suffer when they haven't done anything wrong? Well, why didn't God reserve judgment only for the guilty and, and not for the innocent? A couple thoughts on this. First, the people are not innocent. Did you notice this whole thing started by saying that God was angry at Israel? Did you notice that first line? Go, go back to verse 1. God was angry at Israel. Doesn't tell us exactly why he was angry, but you can probably assume they had the same issues David did. They were proud and had a lack of faith and uh, were looking for the military aggression to, to, to take over other nations just like David was. Plus, we do know they just participated in this big rebellion against David, first under Absalom and then under this dude named Sheba, right? And David was God's king, so in one sense they were rebelling against God. So the point is, they were not innocent. The human race is not innocent. Bad things happen in the world, and we're always like, God, why are bad things happening to the innocent? The whole human race is under a curse for sin that all of us have participated in. If what we deserve are good things, then what is surprising is judgment. But if what we deserve are bad things, then what is surprising is grace and mercy. And most people have this attitude. They're like, God, why are all these bad things happening to us good people? And the Bible actually turns that on its head, says, no, why are all these good things happening to you bad people? The fact that you and I took a breath this morning, the fact that we have family, the fact that we are alive is mercy. If you understand what the Bible says about the penalty for our sin, a sin that you and I have all participated in, a rebellion against God, the fact that we got up today, the fact that God gives us another chance to repent, the fact that you and I are alive or have any good things is the mercy of God. And it requires a complete re-engineering of your thinking because when you have that, you don't have the same questions you used to have. What is surprising is not the severity of God's judgment. What is surprising is the magnitude of his mercy when you understand things the way that the Bible presents them. Jesus one time, most politically incorrect conversation he ever had, one of the most shocking scenes of Jesus in the Bible. You know, th there was this tower in, in Jerusalem that fell and killed 18 people. And the people asked Jesus, like, hey, were those 18 people just more wicked than everybody else? Like God saw 18 of, all 18 of them together at the same time and thought, now's my chance, and just mashed them with the tower? Is that, is that what was going on? Jesus' response, Luke chapter 13, was no. And 
What he said next, I'm telling you, is so, I mean, this is not gentle, meek and mild, precious moments Jesus, you know, with a little fuzzy, you know, robe that you can rub in your body. This is not him. He looks back at them and he says, yeah, that's not really what's happening. You see, the truth is, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Uh Uh-oh. You know what he just said? Let Let me translate that for you. You're sitting around asking why that tower fell on these 18 people. The question you ought to be asking is, why didn't that tower fall on you? Because when you understand things from God's perspective, when you see the magnitude of the sin that you and I have committed, what is surprising to us is mercy, not judgment. What is surprising to us is how much grace that God has given us. So that's the first point I'm I'm trying to make to you is that the people are not innocent. But you're like, okay, but well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But there were many people who were innocent of that particular sin. I mean, David's the one who did it. So that leads me to the second point I will make about this. And that is that this is not the ultimate judgment. From God's perspective, the ultimate judgment is in heaven, and that's the only one that really matters. There may have been people that were innocent of this particular sin that got swept up in this judgment but God will not hold them responsible in eternity for a sin they did not commit. And that's the judgment that really matters. You can kind of just look at this like God is collecting these people early, after which they'll be judged by God in eternity for only their deeds. Now listen, you and I could never, ever, ever use that line of reasoning to justify violence against the innocent on our part, because we're not God. For us, only the people who did the crime should get the punishment. But God, who reigns in eternity and sees justice from that dimension, God, who sees all time as if it were all in one moment, can do things like that and we not accuse him of injustice because he sees all the spans of eternity in one single instance. And so God collects them early, but that's not the ultimate judgment. The ultimate judgment is in heaven, and that's when they'll be held responsible only for their sin. Okay? That's how you gotta, you got to see that. One more thing on this before I move on to our, our fifth and our last issue. And that is that David says something at the end of this that reveals an understanding about God that you and I, when we finally see things clearly, will also say. Verse 14. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of a man. The Bible, listen, consistently maintains in the presence of suffering that God is much more merciful and more gracious than any of us would ever be. You, your mom, your grandma, Mother Teresa, God is much more merciful. And when you and I finally see things clearly, what will amaze us is not the severity of God's justice. What will amaze us is the magnitude of his mercy. One of the reasons that you and I think that the judgments of God are harsh is because we have no concept of how wicked our sin is against God. And when we finally see that clearly, what surprises us is how gracious God has been to us. If you had to fall into the hands of men or the hands of God, you should always choose the hands of God. That's what David holds on to. I realize that for some of you, you have trouble making sense of the world with that statement. The statement, you know, that God is more merciful, more gracious than any of us would rather be. So let me give you a way that, I've used this before with you, but here's how I think about this. Um, Remember back in geometry class? Remember, for some of you, it's quite a while. 
taking you back to some days you don't want to go back into, right? But remember in geometry class, that was a completely unusual type of math class because up until that point in my life, whenever I was given a math problem, I was always given the problem I had to go home and come up with the answer. Now I'm getting the answer and I have to go home and figure out the problem. That's called a geometry proof. You remember this? And so the first couple times I was given that by my teacher, I would go home and I'd try to work it out and it wouldn't work out and I'd come back just convinced that she'd made a mistake, like you gave me the wrong answer. And she would patiently pull out her chalk and she would write it up on the board and she'd point out the different axioms that led to that answer and I'd be, she'd like, see, the transitive property of equality. I'd be like, oh, the transitive property of equality. How could I have forgotten the transitive property of equality? And she'd write it down there and, and, and I would see how you get to the, to the, to the answer there. Well, eventually, I got to where I trusted my teacher. That had never happened before. I got to where I had trusted my teacher, and I would go home, and it wouldn't work out, but I'd keep pressing on it. I'd keep working at it, and eventually, I would figure out the axioms that led me down to that, to that final answer. All right? The reason I, I'm telling you that is because that's what I've learned to do with God as well. There are many things that God says about himself, like, listen, I'm more merciful and more gracious than anyone you could ever imagine. And I look and say, but God, well, why wouldn't you do this? And it doesn't make sense to me. And so what I do is I believe what God reveals about himself, even when I can't make sense of some of the reasoning to get there, because I'm not God, and there's probably a lot of stuff that I'm not seeing leading up to that. You see, God's compassion, God's character was once for all measured for me and put on display at the cross of Jesus Christ. That's where I see how God feels when it comes to me that's where I see how in control God is that's where I see the character and the beauty of God put on display and when I can't understand what God is doing in other places I hang on to what was revealed to me about God in the cross that's what David does is he holds on to a truth about God even when he can't understand a lot of the things that are going on and that's what's got to happen with you as well here's number five the fifth one this is kind of where this whole thing's been heading I don't like the Old Testament God right? People feel like the Old Testament is God in his JV years. He's cranky. Yeah, God got saved in the New Testament and became gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Well, to answer that, let me show you how God acts in this story in the same exact way that he does in the New Testament. It's the exact same thing. I'll show you this. God forgives David of his sin in this story for two reasons. And these are the exact two reasons people get forgiven in the New Testament. A, he repented of his idol. David repented of his idols. You see in verse 14, David said, let me not fall into the hands of men, but let me fall in the hands of God. What's he just said? He said, it's safer, the best place to be is in the hands of God because God is a much better source of protection, he's a much better source of mercy, and he's a much more of a delighting satisfaction than anywhere else I could be. He repented of his idol. Whenever people come to Christ, they repent of their idols and what they delight in and trust in more than God, and they return to God. That's the first reason God forgave David, because he repented of his idol. Second reason he, God forgave David, the gospel. The gospel. L let me show you this. Go back to your, your text there. Look at verse 16. When the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented. That word relented in Hebrew is a word that means compassion. It means he was grieved. It means something in God's soul, if you could call it that was churned up within him and he saw it and he was grieved from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it's enough, stop, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord, it tells you where he was, was by the threshing floor of Arianah the Jebusite. Verse 17, then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, behold, I'm the one who sinned, I'm the one who did wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand be against me and against my father's house. 
So then Gad comes back to David and says, all right, God has stopped. God is grieved. God is showing compassion. He forgives. And so he wants you, here's the message from God. He wants you to buy, catch this, the threshing floor where he stopped and was grieved. And this is where it gets really good. Because what you find out later, 2 Chronicles chapter 3, is that threshing floor that belonged to Arunah the Jebusite was called Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah was the place where Abraham had offered Isaac, or tried to offer Isaac, that became a promise that God would one day send a ram to die in the place of Israel so that Israel could walk free and the ram would be put to death in Isaac's place, in Israel's place. 2 Chronicles 3 tells you that that very spot on this threshing floor is where Solomon built the temple, which is where for the next 800, 900 years, sacrifices are going to be offered, the lamb sacrifices of blood, that are all going to point forward to the coming of a lamb who would die once for all for the sins of all the people. You see what just happened? God comes to this place this threshing floor, and he looks down through history and he sees that on this place, you are going to commemorate the sacrifice of the Messiah for the sins of the people, and God is grieved. He's grieved with love for his people. He is grieved thinking about how Jesus is gonna die in their place, and God says, enough, stop it. And God forgives. You see how verse 17, David says, let your hand be against the shepherd, but these sheep, what have they done? Punish me? That was something David couldn't do because he had his own sin. But at that field, God looked down through history and saw the shepherd who really would be smitten for the sheep. And he forgave. So let me bring all this to a close for you. This strange ending of 2 Samuel leaves you with one major point. David is not the king that we've been searching for. There is another. David's story in 2 Samuel ends by him committing the very sin that had started this whole thing. We've come full circle. They wanted a king to replace God. He now wants an army to replace God. Do you know that many of the Old Testament books end in exactly the same way? It's really strange. But once you see it, you'll start to see it everywhere. Moses, for example. Moses. Moses is the lawgiver, right? Moses' story ends by Moses breaking the law and because of that being unable to go into the promised land. It's, It's a pathetic scene. All Israel is marching over into the promised land and Moses is sitting up there on a mountaintop having to watch them go across the Jordan. He can't go with them because he broke the law. The lawgiver breaks the law. Nehemiah in the Bible. It's one of the last chronologically historical things that happens in the Old Testament. Nehemiah is the great rebuilder of Jerusalem after it's been destroyed. Rebuilds the temple. And the book of Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah, ends with this pathetic scene where all the old people All the old people are standing around this temple and this wall they've just built, and they all start crying. They're like, why are you crying? They're like, because it's not nearly as pretty as the first one. And they remember, they'd seen the first one. It's all about Debbie Downer. I mean, here they are, it's like, oh, it looks terrible. I remember the first one was a lot better than this. And the book of Nehemiah ends with this question of, really? That's it? That's the restoration of Jerusalem? David, David's life ends with him committing the exact same sin that began this whole thing. The whole message of the Old Testament is we need a lawgiver that not only keeps the law but can redeem us when we break it. We need a builder who will build a glorious eternal kingdom that can never be shaken. We need a shepherd who will not abuse his sheep 
like Bathsheba and Uriah, but a shepherd who will die for them. We need a father who will not neglect his children like Absalom, but will pursue them to the point of death and lay down his life for them. We need a king who will not sin against his people, but a king who will die in their place for their sin. And that role cannot be played by Moses or Nehemiah or David. It can only be filled by Jesus Christ, God's son. He is the king that we have been searching for. See, some of you all your life, all your life, you've heard these stories, and the message has always been, be like David, be like Moses, dare to be a Daniel. You're like, really? Really? You want to be like David? I mean, David did some cool stuff. There's certainly some things that we can emulate from him. But David was a terrible father. David was a bad husband. David failed as a king. The point of David's life and Moses' life and Daniel's life is not to be like them. They are to point you to hope and a Savior who works a salvation that is great enough for them and great enough for you. And that's good news for some of you, especially those of you who have lost your way and made a mess out of things. Because that means the point is not your perfect record. The point is the great salvation that God can work in and through you. Some of you feel so beat up because you have failed. You feel so beat up because of the mess you've made of things. The whole point is look to Jesus. Jesus is the king we're searching for. I am not in these messages trying to give you an example to emulate. I'm not trying to stuff your head full of Bible facts. I'm trying to get you to see Jesus. Because what you need is a savior. A savior who can change your heart. A savior who can forgive you where you have failed. A savior who can make all things new. I've told you this before, but the goal of a lecture is that you leave with information. The goal of a motivational speech is that you leave with action steps. But the goal of a sermon is that you leave worshiping. Worshiping Jesus. Not filled with exhortations about what you need to go do for him, but standing in hushed awe because of what he has done for you. That's the goal of a sermon. If I just give you Jesus as an example, if I give you David as an example, then you're going to feel proud when you're doing well, but disgustingly bad and like a failure when you've messed up. But if you see that Jesus was the Savior, it will both humble you, because you see what he had to go through for you, but then fill you with hope, because you'll see what he can recreate through you at the same time. Religion, messages that tell you, be like David, dare to be a Daniel, they're always going to produce one of two things, pride and despair. You're proud when you're doing it well, and you feel like crud when you're doing bad. The gospel fills you with opposites of those. It fills you with humility. This is what Christ had to do for you because you couldn't do it on yourself. Nobody could do it. And then it fills you with hope because you see in the resurrection what God can do in your life and in your marriage. Some of you, your lives are as messed up as David's is. Good news. The point is not David. The point is Jesus. You see what a beautiful picture that 2 Samuel leaves you with? 2 Samuel ends with Israel suffering because of the sins of their king. But it points you forward to the coming of the king who will suffer for the sins of his people. Israel died for David's sins. Jesus would die for ours. The whole point of 2 Samuel is to show you that whatever king you choose will let you down. Israel had a lot of hope in David. He was in many ways everything that they'd wanted. But he let him down. Whatever king you choose will let you down. Maybe it's a spouse Maybe it's money. Maybe it's romance. Maybe it's a drug. Whatever king you choose 
will leave you in the exact same spot that David left the people of Israel. But there is another. There is a king, Jesus. He's the only king, listen, that if you obtain him, will actually satisfy your soul. And he's the only king that if you fail him, will die for you to forgive you. He is the king you've been searching for. I want you to bow your heads and let me pray for you. Father, my prayer for the Summit Church, for me, has been that we be given the gift of faith to be able to see beyond our objections, to be able to see beyond the mess of our lives, and to be able to see the glorious Lord Jesus, who was the point of every single Bible story. God, I, I have prayed that and pray that we will not get hung up on the details of the Bible text and some of the difficulties, but we would see in it the story of a coming of a Messiah who will do for us what we could not do for ourselves, who would give us salvation, and who would make us whole and recreate us anew. God, I continue to ask for me, because my heart grows so dim and cold, and I run toward religion. Keep me away from religion and keep me at the foot of the gospel. Open our eyes so that we would see Jesus. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.